Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How is the summer treating you? Summer is treating me all right. Thanks, Alex. Yep. Bit of rain, bit of sun, bit of work, bit of lounging around. How does that sound? It sounds not at all bad. <laughs> Obviously, we're looking towards autumn sowings right now, are we not? Oh, we really are. And in fact, I sort of slightly cheated and done some in-between ones. And we'll see how What is fair. an in-between one? Well, it should be early autumn, but I got excited, so it's late summer. <laughs> so what's gone in? It hasn't actually gone in yet. I've ordered it. I've ordered it, she whispered. I haven't grown it from seed. It's That's shocking. right. That's okay. Go on. Go on. Oh, loads of stuff. All the spinaches, all the kales. Mm. Some wonderful stuff called tree spinach, which appears to be dusted with gold, like a sort of fairy plant. Is that an ornamental plant or do you eat, is it spinach that you eat? I've never heard of it. You can eat it, but it's very, very pretty. I've never grown it. I'm saying this confidently. Some more squashes, which will not have time to ripen, I imagine, but I live in constant hope. Some leeks. I think we've got some leeks in to go over the winter because, you know, delicious. And why not? Love a homegrown leek. Yeah. They yeah, just yeah. have a sweetness. Lucy, I'm not doing awfully well with mine. I must say the rain has been extreme and I also seem to be having quite a lot of animal activity. What kind and, of animals? Well, I don't know, but there is a very, very disrupted lettuce patch. That's all I'm saying, oh, where I hoped to get some successional sowing and have a little bit of later quick growing lettuce that I might get a little bit later but no nonetheless dahlias are going very well I know you've got no time for dahlias I know that no I absolutely love dahlias it's just that I one year I grew wonderful dahlias and since they hate me <laughs> I, I haven't grown one since I love them they just don't love me that's the problem oh okay right the quest is on to find you a hardy dahlia which will love you back there are some wonderful gardens that one can go and visit which brings us on to our, our little bit of this week's whimsy, we might call it. We could call it that. This yeah. week's pipe dreams, we might say, where you can go and stay. Frankly, if you're reasonably well healed, we should say. If you want a little bit of luxurious writing life, these are writer's houses that you can stay in or, or places with literary connections. What have you found? Well, there's, I think also, as well as being reasonably well healed, you have to be very well organised. <laughs> Oh, you mean because they book out super, super quickly, yeah. Lots of them you can't stay in, but a lot of them you can look around. We've gone for mostly English ones, which is very, actually they are English, they're not even British, I think. It's very, very parochial of us and apologise for that. But we were just looking at some places. If you're on holiday, you could go and poke around where the writers used to live to get some more inspiration. You could go and see Rudyard Kipling's house in East Sussex. Yes, that's really lovely because it's not enormous is it you can walk around it and not feel kind of overwhelmed by there being too much to see mm. you can go and see Coleridge's place in Somerset so which is presumably near Porlock because it's the place where he wrote Kubla Khan so the person from Porlock would have knocked on the door and interrupted him we think that might be an excuse don't we yes quite totally hoping that they have a sort of theme park element to it and somebody dressed up as a person kind of you know much like you've seen all summer people being photographed in barbie booths imagine if you could sit at the desk pretending to write Kubla Khan 
And then the person from Porlock would pretend to knock in disguise. This is why I am not employed by the National Trust. I think it would be a super idea. It would be vulgar and I would bring <laughs> the whole tone down. Well, the other places you can go, actually not that far from the one in Somerset, you could go and see where Thomas Hardy was born, where he wrote Under the Greenwood Tree, Far From the Madding Crowd, a bit of that sort of stuff. You could go and see... Agatha Christie's house, which is quite well known, I think, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's quite is. a beautiful house. On the River Dart in Devon, yes. isn't it? And where she set Dead Man's Folly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a couple in Cumbria. You go and see Beatrix Potter's house. It says here that the garden is laid out to reflect Peter Rabbit's adventures with Mr. McGregor. Surely not by Beatrix Potter. That would have been quite the thing. Or you could go and see Wordsworth's house, which is, you know, kind of classic but you can also stay in Sissinghurst can't you yes that is kind of amazing but would induce in us immense garden envy and anxiety wouldn't it if it were us I have never done it but I would love to do it but maybe it would induce just great feelings of well-being and mm. aspiration or maybe both who knows I think you can go out in the morning in the gardens on your own if <gasps> you stay in the house I think that's right I think it's mm. it's like Disneyland or Legoland you get an hour's access if you stay there early. I believe I've heard. I, I think I shouldn't do this because I have a terrible tendency towards cuttings theft. Oh no, you can't do that. I know. I, I probably can't even say it. I don't think you can it. things. No. But I don't mean no. like I don't mean with a spade. You know, like digging things up by the roots. But you know, cuttings, cuttings. Okay, I think you've put yourself on the blacklist. Let's move quickly on. What's in the podcast this week, Alex? Yes, you're absolutely right. Moving on quickly before I get clapped in eyes. This week we've dipped into the archive and found two literary heroines, one fictional and one real. At the start of the year, we talked to Mary Flannery about the irreverent, bawdy, truth-bombing storyteller who is Chaucer's wife of Bath. And a few weeks later, we caught up with mystery writer Nicola Upson to talk about the unconventional life and unforgettable work of Josephine Tay. And that's what really shines through in her prologue, which is actually, it's the longest prologue in the Canterbury Tales, except for the general prologue, which is only 30 lines longer. And that is because Alison has such a big personality. She is such a character. It's way longer than her tale, isn't it? I mean, the yeah. tale is almost like an add-on yes, to her yes. general chat, to her sort of terribly discursive thing. It's a bit like, I feel like I'm I'm slightly culturally confining us but she makes us sound a little bit like Ronnie Corbett starting one of his one of his stories <laughs> is this aging me and also confining me to, to English Saturday night telly uh I, I won't comment <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say it's a very specific reference it is but it does pick up on something I mean she goes on but there is a chattiness that comes through in the little asides she has you know she is a raconteur. She is somebody who is talent. She keeps telling people, even when she's interrupted, she says, I have not yet started my tale. I'm just getting started here. You know, I have so much more to say. And occasionally she loses her way as well. So you'll have moments where she says, oh, wait, what was I saying? Ah, I have my tale again. And so you just get the feeling of being in the room with someone who is a master storyteller. And there is that little squabble, isn't there, among the other pilgrims during the prologue, where they, they all start talking between themselves and she kind of has to call them to order mm. and say, Look, it, it, not your turn, I'm talking. 
Mm -hmm, exactly. And in fact, the host does stick up for who's there. It says, let the woman tell her tale, mm -hmm. which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a rare moment of seeing, seeing a male character stand up for a female character in, in the kind of context of the pilgrimage itself. But yeah, she, she really does kind of stand up against these, these men who interrupt her not just once, but twice. Two times she's interrupted. And when you remember that she has the longest prologue in all of the Canterbury Tales, perhaps that's some excuse for it. <laughs> but, um, but she really will not be silenced. I love the detail that she's, that she's got a gap between her teeth. Mm -hmm. Because it's such a small, it's like you say about the asides, it's just a little thing, but it immediately you can, you can sort of think of her straight away. She feels much more like a person mm -hmm. than, yeah. than a lot of the others who are reduced also to their, I mean, I suppose necessarily, but they're reduced to their, their sort of roles in society, as it were. Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, this is one of the sort of master strokes that we see in Chaucer's depictions of the pilgrims, but somehow, I, I think one of the reasons why it is so much more powerful in the case of the wife of Bath is that she is herself kind of a composite character. She's made up of all these very well-known anti-feminist, misogynist literary stereotypes that go back, you know, all the way to the Bible and beyond. And so despite that, despite the fact that she's made up of all these bits and pieces, there's a kind of poetic alchemy that occurs. And I think so much of that is dependent on precisely those details, things like the gap in her teeth, the fact that she's a little bit deaf, uh, you know, the color of the stockings she has on just dispers everything. So she's all the things that you're not supposed to be. She talks too much and she mm -hmm. eyes up people in church when she's at the, the funeral of her other husband. She's mm -hmm. open about liking sex and, and thinking that's fine. And she's the things that you are not supposed to be, but then we like her sort of despite these or because of these. Is, is that the point? That is absolutely the case. I mean, she really is, when you think of it, she's kind of made up of every medieval man's worst nightmare. Uh, you know, the woman who talks too much, who berates her husband, uh, who controls him with sex, who is very sexually voracious, who wants to have her way. And yet the details and the fact that she, she speaks up and then talks back to precisely those kinds of stereotypes, I think that's one of the reasons why she is so engaging. And it's true that even when you look at some of the references to her that we see elsewhere in the Canterbury Tales and in medieval literature and later, you know, there is some criticism in there, but there is something, I think, a kind of wry appreciation for the fact that she is such a lively character. But of course, yes, um, the very things that I think so many medieval readers would have been horrified by, you know, if not clutching pearls, clutching cowls or something like that. Those are precisely the things that modern readers, uh, that my students um, tend to love so much. It strikes me that what she also does, as well as just talking sort of, you know, forthrightly about desire, about often violence within marriage, about um, the pain that is inflicted upon men and women in marriage, mm. is that she's creating an argument she's in her prologue she's setting out an argument and she's saying well why uh, when we are told to sort of go forth and multiply when we are told to procreate why should that apply to men only what is it about I mean, she's very explicit about genitalia mm. about body parts why mm. is it that the possession of male genitalia means that you should mm -hmm. take your sexual pleasure where you wish and not women mm. no absolutely she 
repeatedly points out these kinds of inconsistencies, right? You know, well, this great, uh, you know, church patriarch had this many wives, so then I don't understand what's the problem with me having more than one husband, you know, or she'll talk back to those authorities, you know, precisely as you were saying, saying that, okay, well, yes, it's true that virginity is what we're all told to kind of aspire to, but if we all did, there wouldn't be any more virgins, would there? Because nobody would be having children giving birth uh, and raising them. But I think the other thing that she does is she somehow comes away from these extremes, the extreme uh, perfection of virginity, the extreme kind of horror, the anti-feminist stereotype, and she speaks from a position of ordinariness. And this is um, one of the points that Marion Turner made so beautifully, I think, in her book, which is that she describes the wife of Bath as the first ordinary woman in English literature. You know, she's not an ideal and she's also not a nightmare, even though she's made up of all these little components. And she's not an allegory. She's real. You know, she she has everyday experiences, everyday desires. And she also really aspires to that, saying, OK, yes, I, for instance, I have uh, I'm now past what you might call my prime, but I still have a brand that I want to sell. I still have something to give, even if it's not at my best. And I'm going to use it. I'm going to keep Miriam. I'm going to keep having sex. Uh, and then when she's reflecting on virginity and saying, you know, yes, you know, virginity is perfection, she explicitly states immediately afterwards, that am not I. I am not someone who wants to live perfectly. And it's this ordinariness that becomes so extraordinary in her. This business of a biography of a fictional character. You've said a little bit there about what Marianne Turner is, is kind of setting out to do. But I suppose the first thing to address is how you do write a biography of a fictional character, how she does and, and what it is that she's she's seeking to do by doing that. Mm, yeah, no, that's such a great question. And, and one, in fact, that Marianne Turner poses herself. But it did occur to me when I first opened the book, I thought it's true that, you know, if you were to write a biography of a character from the Canterbury Tales, that's that's the only person I'd want to see one about uh, is the wife of Bath. And I think that's partly because Chaucer renders her such a three-dimensional character. But I think one of the reasons behind this notion of a biography for the wife of Bath, it's that she has not only a kind of past, when she comes comes into being in the Canterbury Tales, you know, I talked about all these origins, the textual origins of her character, but she's she then goes on to have a tremendously long afterlife. So she did become somebody who took on life beyond the page, beyond the bounds of the Canterbury Tales, and became this character that you know later writers, later readers uh, remade. Um, thought about, created new backstories for, her, even created a literal afterlives for her, you know, writing ballads in which she has to argue her way into heaven and stuff like that. So I think that's one of the reasons behind, uh, or it's one of the reasons why the approach of a biography for this particular character works so well. It's really looking at, okay, how did she come to be? How did she come into being? What are her textual and cultural and historical origins? But then what is the life that she goes on to live for the 600 years after Chaucer's death? And you point out, I mean, this was fascinating to me that this happened almost immediately, that, that mm. Chaucer talked about her as a sort of character beyond the bounds of the tales after they mm. were first published. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, first of all, we see a couple of references to her outside of her own tale. So elsewhere in the Canterbury Tales, we have other pilgrims kind of doing callbacks, if you like, and saying, well, you know, as the wife of Bath would say, or if you'd like to know more about marriage, of course, you want to talk to the wife of Bath. But then you also have even other poems in that Chaucer writes that refer to the wife of Bath, like his Envoy to Buckton. This is kind of a short poem where he's warning an acquaintance of his against uh, the evils of marriage, and then urges this acquaintance to go and read the wife of Bath if he wants to know more. So you really have the sense that Chaucer himself has created a character that sort of exceeds him in a way, exceeds what he had planned for her. I mean, she's, she's being referenced already by him. And the other thing to note is that, of course, this is a reference he's making, presumably because he believes the person reading the poem will get it, will get the reference and say, ah, yes, I know what you mean by the wife of Bath. So it's tremendous that her afterlife uh, really comes into being even before Chaucer's life ends. I was looking back at our review. We're going to mention it later, I'm sure, about Azadie Smith's sort of newest incarnation of her. And actually, Marion Turner reviewed that for us. And I remember that in her review, she said brilliantly, it was, she, she reviewed it in, um, it was in the November, I can't remember, but last year, year before, they all blur into each other. Um, but she said, if you haven't bought any stocking fillers yet, maybe you'd like to buy some Wife of Bath mm -hmm. soap, <laughs> which has been... <laughs> It's been yeah. marketed very cleverly is <laughs> what women really desire. Well, I'm not mm -hmm. sure that's true. You can also mm. get Wife of Bath cheese, extra mm -hmm. mature. <laughs> it's kind of extraordinary to go from, you know, the, almost the day he wrote it and 600 years later you can buy her soap and her cheese, isn't it? It is. Although I have to say, I, I kind of think the Wife of Bath would get it. You know, I yes, sort of feel yes. it. I think she'd she would be flogging it to you, I think. She would. She'd be saying, this is how to handle your husbands. You know, let me give you a soap that'll really charm them or something. Yeah. You know, I really think she would approve of that because, I mean, first of all, there is her commercial background, as Alex was mentioning earlier. But then there is this sense that she is she's out to make the most of her life. And I think that she would also see, you know, see that in economic terms as well. You know, this is it's one of the reasons why we see her talk so much about manipulating her husbands. You know, she is hyper aware of just how vulnerable she is as a woman in the Middle Ages, uh, really dependent on whoever she happens to marry for her sustenance, her survival, her comfort. And so I think that really she would look at these kinds of wares. And first of all, I think she'd be tickled, uh, tickled pink. But I think that also she would look at that and say, well, yes, absolutely. You know, you've got to make whatever you can with whatever you've got. We're talking about this delighted kind of reception of her. But it mm. wasn't always that way, hasn't always been that way. Has it? I was very struck by that detail in, in your piece that there was a, a ballad about her in the 16th century that was burned. You know, she, mm. she was censured as well as celebrated, wasn't she? Absolutely. And no, that ballad is just, it's fascinating. It has amazing history. It's called The Wanton Wife of Bath. And we don't have any copies of it surviving from the end of the 16th century, perhaps because they were all burned. But what's remarkable is that, you know, if you look at later incarnations of the ballad, which actually a colleague of mine, Kristen Haas Curtis, is studying, you see that it's not really focusing on the things that we note as outrageous to medieval audiences. It just consists of the wife of Bath trying to argue her way into heaven, confronting these various biblical figures who say, you have no right to be here, you've sinned. And she just speaks, she talks back to them and says, well, look at what you did during your own lifetime. You know, you're hardly innocent yourself. And she manages to argue her way all the way up to Jesus, who finally relents and, and lets her in. But 
you know, so it's not exactly a ballad that you would think to be especially dangerous, but there does seem to be something about the wife of Bath as a kind of unruly character that makes her seem potentially a little bit dangerous, you know, mm. not just as a woman, but I think just as a as a social figure in general. Well, I just I just felt that reading her tale now and reading about it, it's amazing how many of the attitudes to relationships between men and women seem to have just become embedded in the culture. There's this sort of, she does something that you might describe as a sort of treat them mean, keep them keen kind of idea. Mm. That whole uh, thing that, you know, often you'll fall in love with a bad boy, you know, these sort of tropes and, and almost cliches. And then, of course, the darker part of it is, you know, gets very close to a sort of coercive control in a way. Now, I don't know if I'm remembering this wrongly, but you said it right at the beginning that, you know, one of the things that we know about her is she's a little deaf, but that's because she's been one of her husband's hitter, isn't it? Mm, no, exactly. And it is, in fact, her current or at least most recent husband, her fifth, Jenkin, that happens to be the one that she got together with after seeing his legs at her husband, fourth husband's funeral. So it's slightly, slightly kind of a colorful detail there. But she describes herself as marrying him after she is 40 and when he is maybe 20 years younger than she is. So she specifies this. And she talks about how she gives him everything. Uh, she gives him all the wealth that she has compiled and acquired and accumulated from her previous husbands. She gives him control. And then in return, she is just subjected to the most horrific emotional abuse. Uh, he reads her stories of uh, from a book of wicked wives, which essentially is constantly telling her just how wicked women are. And then in the end, she rebels against this and tears a leaf out of the book. He strikes her, knocks her to the floor. And it really is a, a shocking, jarring, brutal moment uh, that comes near the end of what has been a kind of lively and cheerful and pragmatic you know, kind of um, story of her life. Still to come on the show, Nicola Opson on the genius of Josephine Tay. And if you've enjoyed what we've talked about this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Welcome back. You're listening to the TLS Podcast Summer Roundup. Here's Nicola Upson speaking to us earlier in the year. Now, Josephine Tay's novels have had an impact on crime fiction that has only grown in the 70 years since her death, an influence made all the more striking in the light of P.D. James's suggestion that such was their unconventionality. They might not even be regarded as detective fiction had they not actually featured a detective. Alan Grant, the policeman in question, spends his most celebrated appearance in The Daughter of Time laid up in hospital trying to solve the mystery of the princes in the tower, a pretty bold setup that was typical of Tay's ingenuity and daring. To discuss the reissue of that novel and two others, we're thrilled to welcome Nicola Upson, whose own series of novels features a reimagined Tay. Nicola, welcome. It's really hard to think of someone better placed to write about these reissues and to talk to us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's always wonderful to talk about her and and it's great to see her having new lives all the time with these new editions. You must feel that she's somehow your sort of constant companion through the last (laughs) few years of your life. I know you didn't actually come to her as a kind of teenager, as some people do. I, I didn't either. But you came to us sort of a little bit later on in adult life, didn't you? I did. That's absolutely right. And I realise now, in hindsight, having met lots of Tay fans at at events and things, that I was a real late starter because most people do come to her either on the curriculum through The Daughter of Time or um, sort of in their their teenage years. And, And although I did, I towered through Agatha Christie moving on after Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, you know, that, that kind of classic route into crime fiction. Tay was somebody who eluded me until comparatively late when I read the franchise of her. Well, that was exactly my experience. Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and somehow not her, but you did say the franchise affair was the first of the novels that you read. And that's also, as with The Daughter of Time, it's based on a historical incident, isn't it, which is then updated to the 20th century. It is. It was based on the Canning case, which was a couple of hundred years old by the time that Tay got to it. But she realised that it could be perfectly refashioned and reimagined for the times that she was living in of the book. The Franchise Affair was published in 1948. So those post-war years that were... You know, very febrile, the society just settling down again, just trying to find its feet after the fear and the uncertainty of the war, a time when everybody was suspicious of the stranger, when people mm. were judged by how they looked and how they behaved and not necessarily correctly. And so Tay played all of that. Identity was a very strong theme in, in all of her books, but she played on that and in typical ingenious fashion created something from it that was entirely new, a setting that is at once familiar to us from the conventions of crime fiction in that it's about a sort of small town solicitor. It's about two women, a mother and daughter, who are accused of kidnapping and abusing a young girl called Betty Kane. And that, for golden age fiction, was quite strong stuff. So she takes all this stuff and she makes it into something which is entirely her own and a gripping story that Interestingly, I think different generations, I mean, you can see by the fact that it's still so popular today, find something new in it. And certainly when I read The Franchise Affair again, it's probably still my favourite of her books. I find something different in it each time, something I haven't 
found before. It's a chameleon of a book. And chameleon was often a word she used about herself in her letters, which is interesting. It does seem to me as though when you're reading her, so I would just say you two said you came to her late, but I came to her very late, like about two days ago. So <laughs> I, read your, I read your piece, Nicola, and I was like, okay, I will read some of this. So I'm reading A Daughter of Time, which is the one that everybody knows, The Daughter of Time. And I'm totally gripped by it. I just think it's brilliant. It seems to me I much prefer it to Agatha Christie and all that. Anyway, don't tell me what happens because I don't want to know what happens. (laughs) It seems that you're getting at least two novelists, aren't you? You're sort of getting historical fiction and you're also getting a detective story. I mean, at least two. There's probably more than that. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned in your introduction that P.D. James said if she hadn't created Grant, who was her serious detective, she might not be regarded as a detective novelist. And I think that's true. And lots of the reasons she is, in some extent, as popular as she is among readers, she's the crime writer's crime writer as well. She's been hugely influential. And it's something that Ruth Rendell also picked up in when she was writing an introduction to Brat Farrer. Take and write the detective novels. We see it in The Man in the Queue, A Shilling for Candles, To Love and Be Wise, which is one of these reissues. I mean, all those are novels of detection in that they have this professional policeman who I would argue was one of the first really kind of credible policemen to feature in detective fiction. But she's also got these other novels too, like Brat Farrer and The Franchise Affair and Miss Pym Disposes, books that Grant doesn't appear in as a main character, although he crops up in a cameo role in The Franchise Affair, which are much more psychological. They look at the darkness inside ourselves. They make us face the darkness inside ourselves. And they're precursors in a way to books that we love, like P.D. James's Innocent Blood or, you know, psychological crime novels. And and Patricia Highsmith's work as well. Brat Farrer is about an imposter, isn't it? It's about that somebody who just turns themselves into somebody else. And it has that kind of Highsmith idea of the sort of double that always walks alongside you. And that in some respect kind of mirrors a sort of split self. I may be getting a little bit fanciful here. I don't know. But it's that sort of thing rather than a crime. Someone comes along and solves it. Absolutely. But once again, she does something really different and unusual with the imposter novel, because lots of imposter novels are about us as readers guessing whether this person is or isn't who they say they are. Right up front, she tells us at the beginning, Brat Farah is an imposter. We know he's a wrong and in the sense of what he's trying to do, which is infiltrate this family that he doesn't think he has any connection with. And yet we love him. It's her genius that she makes us love him and she makes us on his side. And I think that's an interesting thing about her books as well, is how she can corral you into embracing these characters and standing with the underdog, maybe having those sympathies with characters that in the hands of more conventional novelists, we wouldn't side with. A really interesting point that you make in your piece, which is just sort of fascinating with all the biographical details about her. You make the point about her writing that she puts so much focus on the victim. You know, you're talking yeah. there about how we we do identify and side with to an extent someone like Brat Farah. But she recognizes the victim and not just the immediate victim, but the ripples that a violent crime creates in a society and mm. an environment. And I'm interested in the way that you think she was sort of departing from classic golden age fiction by doing that and what she was trying to do. 
I think she, right from her very first book, which wasn't a detective novel, it was called Kiff, and it came out in 1929, and it was the story of a boy who goes to war and comes back and finds a society that has no place for him. And it's a book that, in its very raw, she was a young writer then, and it's very raw, and it screams with injustice. But Kiff is her first victim, if you like, and, and you really, as a reader, care for him. And I think that's interesting in the way that it looks forward into her crime fiction. If you take a book like The Franchise Affair, which I think is classic in its treatment of this subject, she was one of the earliest people to recognise how many people crime affected. Christie did it too. I mean, you, in some of Christie's best novels, you get that dissatisfaction with the legal system, the conventional paths of justice. But Tay takes you in a way beyond the place that lots of novels normally finish, where justice has supposedly been done. A, with that uncomfortable idea that perhaps justice hasn't been done. B, with the idea that even if it has, there are people who will be forever changed by the world of the book that she's created. Not to give too much away as to whether Betty Kane, who is the kidnapped girl in the franchise affair, we pretty much know whose side we're on through most of the path through that book. But there are other people. She has an adopted mother who can never, in one memorable line, Marion Sharp, one of the heroines of the book, talks about how that woman will never be able to step onto green grass again without wondering if it's a bog. And it's that kind of idea that once you've been affected by crime, if you're the victim, if you are the family of the victim, obviously that loss will be forever with you. But also if you've been fooled, if somebody who has presented themselves as one thing, again, that idea of identity, and turned out to be something else, that's a scar that you never entirely wipe out. And I, I think she's, certainly I think for me and the sort of books that I like to write, that uncomfortable sense of, because death is entertainment, crime novels, it's a funny old genre really, <laughs> but she, said it had to be unsettling. You have to recognise that darkness. And it comes with her with the sort of thinnest of veneers because the voice of the books, the warmth, is part of what we love about them. But she can write books that are taken on so many different levels. And if you delve below the surface that she presents to us, you get that very uncomfortable darkness that stays with you long after you finish reading the book. Mm. That idea about identity and all sorts of identities. I mean, she, as Alex mentioned, she herself had at least sort of two identities, more than two probably, didn't she? She did. Well, she she fashioned literary pseudonyms for herself. Her real name was Elizabeth McIntosh. We know her best as Josephine Tay, which was a name that was introduced with her second crime novel, A Shilling for Candles. But she also had another name, Gordon Daviot, that her first crime novel, The Man in the Queue, was published under, but also then became more famous for historical fiction and for the plays that she wrote that were very successful, particularly a play called Richard of Bordeaux, which ran for over a year in the West End and really launched Gilgood on his celebrity career. And so she had those different writing identities. And to some extent, certainly in all the letters I've read over the years and collected, she had different voices depending on whom she was writing to. I mean, she was her theatre friends. It was very much a David letter and she had that voice. Interestingly, the Tay voice was used for people 
she knew really, really well, maybe people that she'd known her whole life. And you, you sense that, again, that warmth and that, that humour coming out of the page. So, yeah, she did fashion her own identities for literary purposes, but also she was a different person. I think all of us, to some extent, are different depending on where with friends or families or work colleagues. But certainly she was a different, more private person in Inverness. And when she came down to London and got her furs out of storage and booked into her private club, she was much more gregarious. And it's not to say that those one camp of friends knew her any better than the other, but they certainly knew her differently. I love that detail that you mentioned there and in the piece of her getting her furs out of storage in Debenhams. Yeah, Gilgood told me that. I was lucky oh. enough, <laughs> I was lucky enough to speak to Sir John Gilgood, who knew her very well before he died. And and that was one of the things he told me because she came down to London quite often and she stayed at the Cowdery Club, which is a club for nurses and professional women. It's in the news again at the moment because it's now the headquarters of the Royal College of Nursing. And so she booked into that club and she had her furs in storage at Debenhams just around the corner and her bank, the Westminster Bank on the corner. So so she had the life set up ready for her to step back into when she came down south again. And her life in Inverness, again, was constrained. Not, I mean, it was a long way away from that you know, theatre society of London and that life that she lived. But it had different kind of constraints, too, because she was a carer for her mother and her father and her writing was, I mean, she was a compartmentalised person, wasn't she? She was a sort of socialite type of person, a writing person, a caring person. But she kept them all separately in a way. She did keep them all separately. I mean, personally, I, I think there are a lot of myths that have sprung up about Tay and often because she started them herself. And this idea of her caring for an invalid father, certainly she came home, she cut short her career, which was as a physical training instructor after her mother's death. And she came home to live at Crown Cottage in Inverness with her father. Now, her father was catching prize winning salmon into his 80s. So I don't know how much of an invalid. Not completely bed bound was. then. No, no. <laughs> but they did live very companionably together. And it suited her because it allowed her, she was somebody who, from what I can see, when you start to get obsessed with this and you're looking at the dates on letters and, and piecing together where she was at different times, she was somebody who didn't like to be in one place for too long. And it, it was perfect for her because if she was with her London friends and they were beginning to weary her, she had to get back to Inverness. But she wasn't quite as tied to Inverness as she sometimes gave the impression of being. time for this week our thanks go to mary flannery and nicola upson and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy and ably assisted by alex lee we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye 